Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. What's up, guys? Hoping y'all are having a good week. We got a little bonus content for you today. We have the Q&A session from the Mobile Hunters Expo from Chattanooga, Tennessee a couple weeks back. Uh, Jacob and I helped facilitate the Q&A as well as all the seminars that went on at the show. And this is that Q&A session. We had a panel of really good hunters and we did a kind of an open forum Q&A where the audience was able to ask a bunch of questions. Uh, the hunters included Daniel Lemon, Jeremy Aaron, Michael Perry, Hunter Hogan, Josh Trollinger, and Jonathan Moreland. Uh, I think all of those guys have been on the podcast now, except Josh Trollinger. We're working on that. But just a room full of just, 
I mean, really, really good deer hunters. Uh, also, the audience asked some really, really good questions in this. I think y'all are going to like it. Also, all of the people I just mentioned here did their own seminar at the expo. So each of them had like an hour segment where they did their own thing and, and kind of talked about what makes them successful. You can find all of those seminars on the Fueled by the Outdoors podcast feed. So if you go look up Fueled by the Outdoors podcast, you'll find all of those seminars on their feed. I'll also link them in the show notes below so you can uh, catch all those over there. Now, th this all happened at the Southern Show. The Northern Show in Kalamazoo, Michigan, will be taking place on the weekend of the 28th. Uh, they're going to do a similar format where they're going to have speakers there. Uh, the most One that probably most of the people that listen to this will recognize is Dan Infault. Uh, Dan's going to be up there, and I'm sure that most of you guys are familiar with Dan. Uh, so go, go catch him up there if you're in the area. I promise you it's worth the drive. You won't want to miss it. Also, Jacob is going to be up there. Uh, I won't be able to make that show, unfortunately, but Jacob will be up there, so y'all make sure you go find him and, and say hey to him if y'all are at that show. And then lastly, this week in Birmingham, Alabama, is the World Deer Expo. Jacob and I will actually have a booth there, so y'all be checking our social media and everything. Uh, y'all come find us at the World Deer Expo. We're going to be in the downstairs area. We're sharing a booth with uh, Michael Perry. And, you know, at the Mobile Hunters Expo in Chattanooga, Tennessee, we... We recorded podcast segments with a whole bunch of different hunters. You know, y'all heard that a couple weeks ago on the show, uh, the 25 Tips, um, that that podcast we recorded at the show. We're going to do the same thing at the World Deer Expo, but we actually want to hear from listeners. So we want to hear from you guys. We want y'all to come stop by the booth. And, you know, if you want to be on the show, uh, we'll talk to you. And, and we'd love to get to know, like, what's made a difference for you. Like, maybe if you have a listener success story, maybe if there's just something that's helped you have a breakthrough – we want to have you at the show and, and actually do like a little 10-minute segment with you. So y'all make sure to uh, swing by the booth if you're interested in doing that. But even if not, swing by the booth and say hey to us. Also, we're going to have stickers. We're going to have Southern Outdoorsman stickers for free. So come by and get a free sticker. It's going to be a really good time. We're excited about it. But like I said, to get the rest of these seminars, go over to the Fueled by the Outdoors podcast feed. And without further ado, let's kick it on over to the Mobile Hunters Q&A. All right, everybody. Appreciate y'all joining us for this Q&A session here at the Mobile Hunters Expo in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We have our panel, and really excited about this. Uh, this is going to be an awesome opportunity, guys, to be able to ask all the questions you may have heard or may have thought about uh, to all these guests. And some of these guys have been on the podcast. Uh, some guys have not. So there's a lot of opportunity to be able to open up some awesome questions before we start the seminar for tomorrow. Uh, to kick us off, I want to start from my right to, to the left, starting with Daniel. Daniel, I want you to introduce yourself and then pass the mic around, and I want to kind of get to know everybody. I'm uh, Daniel Lemon. I'm from northern Mississippi, north-central Mississippi, and uh, been hunting public land about the last four or five years and uh, traveled a bunch, and I'm, it's, it's super fun to do. So, I'm Jeremy Iron. I'm 56. I've traveled the country a good little bit and hunted a lot of different states, so I just like passing on a lot of the knowledge that I've learned over the years and to these younger guys here. Michael Perry, 58, from North Alabama. Don't do as much traveling as some of these do. A lot of public land in Alabama. Done a few, like, big game hunts, barrel hunts and stuff like that, but but the Alabama public land and some of the other states, as I'm trying to expand on to, is just one of our passions. And we love, like Jeremy was saying, sharing the knowledge and trying to help younger hunters out. So. Uh, my name is Hunter Hogan. I'm 25 from Missouri. So I guess I'm the young gun of the group. But uh, 
yeah, I love to hunt public land, film, um, you know, mobile hunt and stuff. So I uh, really enjoy watching deer, learning about them, uh, kind of my enjoyment of that side of things. And uh, yeah, really love the sport. Josh Trollinger, Central Missouri, um, 40, so I guess I'm right in the middle of everybody. Uh, the mobile hunting thing's kind of been my ticket the last five years. Doesn't matter if it's private, public. Love to enjoy it, love to be out there and teach everybody from a bigger guy's stature that it doesn't matter. You can get in the mobile hunting stuff, you can enjoy it. It will make you a better hunter and more importantly, um, competitive archery. So part of the stuff we're gonna talk about is, you know, the things that we do on the competitive stage that as a hunter, if you dive into that realm a little bit, it can make you a more proficient hunter. So excited to be here. Uh, my name is Jonathan Moreland. I'm from South Arkansas. And uh, <clears throat> I've been a passionate hunter for as long as I can remember, for ever since I was a kid. Um, I'm very passionate about traditional bow hunting. I've been doing that die hard for the last 12, 13 years now. Um, pretty much stick to Arkansas, travel a little bit, but hunt a lot of public, a little bit of private down there. And uh, just very passionate about hunting and glad to be here to around a lot of hunters. And uh, let's talk some hunting. Awesome, awesome. Real quick, to kind of kick us off, I, I want a quick question. I'm going to answer a couple of you guys and get some uh, some takes on. Jeremy, I'm going to start with you. What is one of the biggest factors for you to stay consistent as you travel and hunt all these different states when you're targeting mature bucks? Well, like I said, I'm a river, river bottom hunter, so I sort of stay with my niche. I look for river bottoms. You can find river bottoms in pretty much any state you want to hunt public land. That's what I key in on. Hunt the rut hunt the right time of the year and i hunt weather hunt weather and hunt the moon face and i you know she stay with it with them three factors right there i got them three factors rut moon phase and the weather and it just seems like it works no matter which state you go just just stay with it michael Perry, i want to ask you the same question because i think you've got some interesting takes here what are some of the factors that's helped you become successful and stay consistently successful targeting mature bucks uh, in your home state of alabama yeah, uh, my biggest thing, like on the public, like we hunt, is picking you out of a spot or train that you're comfortable with, making it your own, say a mile or so area, learning where all the people are at, keeping up with the does, and then with your trail cam, trail cameras, use that and learning the timing of when you need to be in specific places during the rut because in the south, pre early season is so tough to try to kill a monster buck. It's it's easier or not easier, but it's a little easier to time seeing them during the rut. So learning land the best you can and how the deer using it, train and elevation and, and different edges and stuff is, is the biggest thing that I've learned over the years. Josh, I'm going to turn this over to you as well. Uh, what's been a big factor for you, especially when it comes to the consistency of killing mature bucks, and specifically on the mobile hunting side, uh, how has that changed for you? So I guess for me, I have a different approach than most everybody else. Like. I probably spend more time, to your point, learning the piece of ground, understanding what's there, and not doing it intrusively. So I spend more time looking at maps and more so looking at the surrounding area and what, what impact will that surrounding area have on the area that I want to target. So if I can find where the people are on the surrounding areas or how the crop ground or 
cattle pressure, um, farmers pressure, that sort of thing, what they're gonna do to move animals into a target area that I wanna hunt. I spend as much time focusing on that as I do actually getting in and hunting that specific piece. Jonathan, I wanna pass it over to you as well. When it comes to staying consistent as a whitetail hunter, what's been some of the bigger factors for you specifically, especially in the home state of Arkansas? So uh, definitely in my home state, um, my main priority early is, is definitely keying in on feed trees. I'm a big feed tree hunter, and over the years it has proven time and time again that if you can find that perfect isolated feed tree, um, a lot of times that's that's where I'm killing a lot of my a lot of my deer, um, and it's all relative to the time of year. I mean, obviously this is happening early early November, and then we change the game up a little bit as the rut comes in, because you can kind of throw that out the window once the rut comes in. Then we're kind of focusing on funnels and stuff like that. So it it really pertains to the type of year, you know, what we're trying to do to try to get on some of these deer. Awesome, Daniel. I want to come over to you. You might be the youngest guy on the panel, but you're still extremely successful. So I want to get your take on this. As, as a younger guy and an influence for other younger hunters out there that are in their 20s, they're still trying to figure out their way to become successful. What would be a piece of advice you'd give them as someone that's young, that's hungry, to be able to go out there and learn how to have success on their own, but be able to kind of grow that and figure out how to become more successful as the coming years come? Well, what I could say is listen to somebody, learn from somebody else. And don't listen, don't learn from just one person, learn from several. Uh, I learned a whole lot from Jeremy, but I've expanded that. I listen to everybody in the hunting industry and try to take a little bit from that and I apply it to my hunting and what I look for and what I'm hunting. And it just kind of all adds together and builds. So best thing i could say is just listen to somebody and don't just stop with one person you know listen to a bunch um and just you know i'm a single guy i'm 22 and i so i can't say nothing about the you know if you're married or whatever and and trying to deal with the traveling but uh i mean if you can travel do it because it is it is super fun Hunter, I want to get it over to you. Uh, we just had you on a Southern Outdoorsman episode and kind of talking about this exact same topic. And I want to get your take on this from the consistency, especially as a guy who travels, but again, a guy that's young but extremely hungry and has a drive to target mature whitetails. What would be some of your advice and some of your takeaways you've learned the last few years while trying to do this? Uh, yeah, I mean, consistency is a, a hard thing to replicate in a lot of different states. I mean, um, Jeremy's going to be extremely good in Arkansas. Michael's going to be really good in in uh, Alabama. Josh is going to be really good in Kansas. But you know they're each going to have their own different tactics for that area, that state, what they really hone in on and focus on. So you really have to focus on what things you can replicate in each state, each different terrain. What you can do the same in hill country, open country, uh, the plains. Um, learning deer's personalities. I mean. That's kind of the main thing is is not getting tunnel vision um, is something that I focus on the most part is, uh, you know, just because one factor or one tactic or one thing you learned from somebody worked really good in this situation doesn't mean it's going to work 
exactly like that again. Um, each buck has a different personality. Each buck does a different thing. I mean, we've got deer that travel 25 miles in a season and uh, migrate as a whitetail, and then we got deer that'll never leave a 200-acre place. So, I mean, um, you know, just don't get too tunnel vision and, and really learn off of what you see. You know, uh, believe your eyes. When, when you see a deer do something, believe that's what he's doing. Believe that it was on purpose, not just an incident. And just because it's something you've never seen a mature whitetail do before doesn't mean that deer doesn't do that. So um, I just really try not to stay in a box, um, get tunnel vision, and just keep an open mind for each and every deer that I come across and try to learn what he does and, and how I can take advantage of, of his game plan. So. Now, for all the attendees, you've had a, an opportunity here to kind of listen and learn in a very short period of time a little bit about the backgrounds and the mindset of some of these guys that are sitting up here. I want to open it up to the floor, and we've got Rick walking around with a microphone. Uh, I, I want to open it up and see what questions some of you guys may have for some of the individual guests or for the whole panel and see what we can get done and, uh, and get answered here today. Uh, so you were mentioning feed trees earlier. What's the best way to locate a feed tree and know that it's that one and not another one? So when I'm out looking looking for feed trees, I'm really wanting to key in on what I call an isolated feed tree. That's where I found most of my luck. And what I mean by isolated is <clears throat> I'll take, for example, persimmons. That's what we're looking for a lot early. And a lot of times you'll find persimmons around a, a water source or something but a lot of times you'll find maybe a clumper maybe there'll be five or six and a lot of times you'll find sign under those trees but most of the time where we find our success on older deer is that isolated persimmon maybe that's that's hugging a thicket or in a thicket and the way when you know when you find that hot tree and you ask how do you know which one that is I promise you, you don't have to have any hunting experience at all. When you walk under that tree, you know that that's the tree. There'll be, uh, for lack of a better word, deer scat on the ground. I won't use the word I, I want to use, but, um, and and it'll be beat out pretty good. And, and now this also depends on what WMA you're hunting or where you're at. Well, obviously, if you've, you're hunting a place that doesn't have a high density area, the sign won't be as great as it would be if you're hunting a place that has a, you know, a high density population of deer. But I promise you, when you, <clears throat> when you find that hot feed tree, that whole drip line around that tree, it'll have, a, it'll have an off color to it. And there's no doubt in your mind that you know you need to be set up in that spot. Okay, I got I got a follow up to that just real quick, uh, Jonathan. I don't know how many turkeys you have in your area. Uh, not enough. Not enough. How does how does that deer sign compare to turkey scratch? Because we actually just interviewed another guy about feed trees, and he was talking about a lot of times the turkeys are going to be on that same tree, so you're going to be seeing turkey scratch essentially. But he's focusing in on that scat. So I mean, I'm just curious about how that compares for you, like in river bottom country. Um, <clears throat> that's interesting. I, I've never really confused turkey scratching with with deer sign on feed trees. Um, the leaves are turned over. The leaves aren't turned over. But <laughs> well, you know, so early persimmons. My four main feed trees I'm focusing on is a persimmon, a honey locust, water oak, and then a nut all, which is a red oak acorn. Um, 
and particularly early season, obviously this guy's got a lot of turkeys in his area because I've never run across that problem, you know. So um, I really don't even know how to answer that question. Uh, where was that guy turkey hunting at? Because I'd like to try to get in on that area. But, um, no, I mean, you're looking for deer scat and – and uh, it'll be beat out under that feed tree. A lot of times, if a, if a mature deer is using the area, there'll be rubs or scrapes around. Um, but it, it's pretty obvious if a deer is using that tree. Can I ask two questions? <clears throat> First question is to Jeremy. I'm just wondering what, the, what your favorite state to hunt is and why. For whitetail, there's no doubt Iowa is the best because they limit non-resident hunters. Very little non-resident hunting pressure in, in Iowa and plenty of public land. But it's hard to get a tag there too, though. What do you do the other five or six years you're waiting on Iowa? Well, there's a, I like finding sleeper states. I put in draw to Wyoming this year because a guy sort of told me in the area that, you know, he wouldn't tell me about it to go hunt. He was just telling me about it. They'd kill big deer on it. I done a little research and I'm like, hey, I drawed it on a second choice. So I, I like looking for them places that everybody are overlooking. I'm the type, everybody's going this way. I go this way. I think outside the box. Second question is to Moreland. I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but, but I got to ask. Uh, I know it's relative to the time of year and everything, but what if you had to pick one food source in general, what would you pick? What's your favorite? By far, most definitely, the honey locust is my favorite food source to hunt. And, th and this is primarily early in the year. Um, it's not going to do you any good late, but early in the year, I really like to focus on a honey locust, and I like to try to find that isolated honey locust in a, in a thicket. And uh, one reason that is my favorite, I'm a little biased on it because I've some of the bigger deer I've killed has been over a honey locust. But the cool thing about the honey locust is in the areas I hunt, we have a lot of hogs. So when I'm hunting persimmons or water oaks or nut alls, I'm getting a lot of hunts ruined by hogs coming in. And this is on seven or eight of the WMAs and refuges down in that area. They're all completely covered with hogs. The honey locust, a hog necessarily does not like to eat a honey locust. On very rare occasions have I, have I had hogs pick a honey locust up. But mature deer, for whatever reason, um, I really find a lot of buck sign around a hot honey locust tree. And we have had extreme success early October, late October, even into, into early November on the honey locust tree. So I know that if I can find a hot honey locust close to a thicket, inside a thicket, um, and I can find a scrape within 40 to 50 yards of the drip line of that honey locust, I know I have a really good shot at killing a deer there. So I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how I should set up for that. And I spend a lot of time trying to figure out where that deer may be bedding from that food source. And if I can find that early, I'm pretty confident going into the season. Uh, this is basically for all you guys. I mean, but how long, how long do you spend hunting a spot? You know, you were talking about finding the food sources and the scrapes. And I mean, how, how much time are you going to devote to sit in there on that honey locust before you decide to move on? Or, or if you're in a spot in the river bottoms and you're not seeing what you think you should, but you think there's a good deer in the area, are you going to hang in there or are you going to try and move, do something else? Just basically, I mean, just how, how much time do you feel like you, you could devote to a spot before you say, okay, I'm, this isn't working, I'm going to move on? Let's start with Jonathan. So 
some of the areas I hunt, some of the WMAs, we, we're allowed to run trail cameras, and I run a lot of trail cameras. A lot of these feed trees that I'm finding early, I'm trying to put a put a trail camera on a lot of these trees. Now, obviously, over the last 25 plus years of bow hunting I've hunted, I don't, I can't afford to put a camera on every single tree I find. So I, I select the the really hot trees, and I and I I, I uh, put cameras on them. And then uh, within a week or two, I'll go back to check. So I'm really, I'm watching these trees to see how often the deer's using them. And then when I go to hunting, I've kind of got an idea already on what times he's using that tree, if he's using if he's using it a lot. Um, so normally, I think most of the guys will agree that your first time in is probably you're going to be your best opportunity to kill one but there's been times where you know i maybe not have seen him the first time and i'll hang with it i'll hang with it three or four hunts uh to see if he's going to show up there if i'm still getting him on camera and then if not then i'm trying to figure out where else in the area he is and then i'm probably moving so i'll say three to four sits probably no good i'm probably trying to figure out what else i need to do jeremy our running gun style is a lot different from how they're setting up on finding a deer I hunt sign. I'm not hunting a particular deer. I'm, I'm hunting, I'm up, you know, a community scrape or a good travel corridor. I really like going in. I may hunt in the morning. Go, say I go in midday, I like to sit, leave my stuff, come back the next day and hunt it in the morning, and I'm going to move somewhere else. So I don't, I've, I'm like him. The first set, the second set is usually going to be your best on big deer. Uh, but I like moving around on them. I may not move far in that area. But I like moving. I just like sort of bumping around on them. You know, like me hunting the rivers and stuff, I may go up the river a half mile and go in and find another spot, climb up and hunt that evening, hunt it the next morning, and then I'm out of there. Michael Perry, what's your take on that question? Early season, I don't just a hunt or two on, on uh, feed trees or close to bedding. Now, rut and pre-rut, I use cameras like for the next year's information, and we have specific gun days during our rut, I'll spend the whole four days or whatever if I can get in and feel like I'm not messing anything up. So access is real key on them rut hunts. And then I will, I'll spend four days. I have spent seven before bow hunting. Then I'll move to a different funnel or something. But, I, but my biggest thing with me is the access. If you can get in without without blowing them out because during that time they're traveling more with the low density area. So it might take three days for a buck to come back through checking doe group so I'll, I'll spend three or four days on a on a rut and pre-ruts hunt so daniel i'm gonna pass it over to you what's your thoughts on that question about how long you would hunt a spot before moving and it depends on the sign for me what i'm finding if it's super hot sign or just say the best sign i'm finding in that area it may not just be amazing but you know still pretty good sign more than likely not more than a day day and a half and i'll move around move to a different spot um, but if it's a really good spot, I, I don't want to burn out my one tree with, you know, because you're not going to have a consistent wind the whole time. I'll just bounce around in that area. Uh, but as far as being one tree, I'm not going to sit in it more than a day, day and a half at the most. And then I'm going to I'm going to be moving. So, Hunter, I'll let you take that question from there. What's your thoughts on how long you'd hunt a spot before you move? Uh, about two hours. <laughs> um Nah, I'm kind of an extremist when it comes to that. I I do it a little different. I'm, I'm the type of guy, I, I go in and scout 80, 90% of the time. Um, I'm not I'm not hunting sign as much as, as uh, finding a specific deer. 
studying him enough to predict his next move and then going in for the kill. So I've got like a whole different approach. I don't know if it's applicable to the question really, but. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going in and, and it kind of differs on different parts of, um, terrain that I'm hunting and stuff. If I'm hunting really thick, uh, hill country, woods, um, any sort of stuff that I can't really like sit back and view a deer, then I'm going in and, and getting aggressive and moving around through there and even, even bumping a deer out of his bed. I mean, um, I'm literally wanting to lay eyes and study that deer uh, before I go in for a kill. Um, if I'm in more of like open country, I'm going to do an observation sit and, and watch what that deer is doing, try to predict his next move. And then, um, you know, I really use moon phase a lot. Uh, my kill days are always going to be on a red moon day whenever I know that buck's going to do the next move and, and he's the most predictable at that time. And uh, I'm going to go in and set up and try to try to kill him within the first couple hours of, of getting set up in that first or second sit. So um, I'm really in a different tree every time for a different purpose. And uh, I don't spend much time in one spot. It's more of trying to trying to get him killed and, and roll on. So, All right, Josh, your turn. It really depends on terrain. If we're talking crop ground, um, I'm kind of like Hunter. I, I may hunt that spot for three or four days, but I'm probably going to be as far away from where I think I can kill that deer for the first two or three days just so that I can – and I'll sit all day. I don't care if it's September 1st or if it's December 31st. I'll stay all day because I will want to see what that animal is doing in its natural pattern before I ever – risk going in there and then the day that i go in there to try to take that deer out or hunt that deer specifically then i'm going all day and i'm daylight to dark now if it's hardwoods it's the exact opposite i literally will not set up until like to jonathan's point until i find that hot tree or i find the sign and what i'm looking for is i don't care about rubs i don't care about scrapes all the rest of that stuff because that gets made at all different times there's obviously hot points to that, but if there is fresh deer scat there, that animal's been there and likely coming back. But if it's not fresh, I'm just going to continue to move and move and move until I either bump that animal and know that it's worth sticking around or find that hot sign that has good food dropping and there's fresh scat. And then I'll spend probably two days on that spot. And if I don't see them, I'm, I'm gone. All right, so my question would be, Mike touched base on it. Um, when you find an area that you want to hunt or a deer that you want to hunt, how do you determine what access you use to hunt that deer? Jeremy, let's start with you. Oh, that's the tricky part is getting in there without even finding, you know, knowing you're there. Um, a lot of times hunting from water, I don't go very far in. So that is a big advantage of that. But now walking in a place, you got to go in with a wind right where you think he's bedded. You know, you, you've got to, that's the big plan as to how to get in there. You know, a lot of us looking at Topo is how to, how to come in on him that you think, you know, that is a very important how you get in there to him. Because you bump him and bump him out of there, there's no need sitting in that stand all day. Jonathan, what's your take on that question? Talking about access. Yeah, so I, I agree 100% with Jeremy. Um, <clears throat> what I really like to do, if I know a deer's in the area, the first thing I'm trying to figure out is where he's bedding or where I think that deer's bedding. I know, and 
like Hunter said, it's, it's really relative to what area of the country you're hunting. I know in the Midwest, the guys are big on the, the bump and dump and they know the exact bed that buck is laying in. I've hunted for all my life and I can tell you, I've hardly ever found an exact bed that a buck I've killed is laying. It just, in the South where I hunt, it's as thick as it is, they can lay anywhere. So I'm trying, I use common sense. I'm trying to, I kind of, I backtrack. I find my feed trees, I find where the sign is, and then I go from there, and then I try to figure out where he's bedded. Where I think I know he's bedded, and I say I think I know he's bedded, then I try to figure out what wind I need to try to access where my setup's gonna be that's not gonna affect him where I think that he's bedded at. Daniel, what's your take on that question, talking about access? Pretty much the same thing as far as, you know, knowing where they're bedding at uh, and then just approaching it out of sight, especially if you're going to be close to the bed. Uh, and it depends on where you're at. If you're in the south and it's real thick, you can get pretty close without them knowing you're there. If you're in the more of the Midwest or open uh, country, you know, you got to you gotta watch how you walk in as far as not being seen and not being smelled. You got to watch... Uh, your terrain and and the wind so you know pretty much sort of the same thing because uh, their their lifelines their nose their eyes and ears and they're living by that so you got to watch that uh, and that's pretty much that's pretty much it josh talk to me about access and your thought there when targeting specific bucks so i've actually <laughs> i've done this a couple different times but I'll spend as much time looking at a map and looking at the surrounding property, and then I'll spend time on the exterior going, okay, if I, what is the daily activity when it's not hunting? What are people doing? How many people are driving this road? Where are they driving? Where are they parking? How do they access it in their daily life? And figure out that there may be a specific area that I could park my truck as an advantage that that deer is gonna know it, hear it, see it, whatever, and then I may walk a gravel road two miles around, not only using myself, but using the others that are around me before I access that. And to his point, if the thermal area is not right or the wind is not right, I mean, if I don't have, if I know that that deer is there and I wanna go after that deer, if I don't have at least a 10 mile an hour wind that I can guarantee what the wind and the thermal is gonna do, I'm probably waiting until that day comes that I have absolutely terrible weather because that puts it in my advantage and takes it away from him. Michael Perry, what's your thoughts on this? I think you've got an interesting thought process, especially on shorter hunts when it comes to access. Yeah, obviously water. You know, I've waited creeks and big creeks a mile to, to get to certain places and pop up and hunt. You know, coming from the river, you know, I don't have a boat or anything. That's easy. That's key too, but because water, you can do a lot of things and get away with it. You know, with the thermals and the hills that where we hunt at, if I can go up from the bottom and pop up and see and know that the thermal is going to benefit me, I will do that. But most of the time, because I'm walking so far, say a mile and a half to a mile and three quarter, I've got to figure out some kind of old logging road or something that I can access, and they're generally going to be higher up than I'll pop over a ridge and I don't care about the wind as long as it's not blowing where I think they're either going or coming from. If it's going over, I'm going to give that up, and hopefully I'll have the shot when they get there. So that's, you know, but I don't want to cross any trails. The, the, 
if I can do that. So the least amount of intrusion you can, but where we hunt out, you got to do a lot of walking. So you're, you've only got a few days, so I'm going to risk part of it. But, you know, the wind, as long as the wind is not going, like I say, where they're coming from or going to, I'll, I'll give it up. You know, I've walked in with it coming straight to, off my back, you know, but just, but I'll give it up. So that's, that's, that's my thoughts on it. And last, Hunter Hogan. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of bring it down to square one. I mean, the spot is either obviously going to have good access or bad access. And, and how do you approach each one? If it has good access, then, you know, make sure your wind's right. Play your scent control as good as you can and, and get in your spot. If it's bad access, uh, you're going to have to figure out some unconventional ways to, to get in on that buck. Um, you know, like Jeremy said, the, the Midwest, sometimes they're using the same bed, but usually they're I mean, anywhere they're moving around. I mean, they could be miles away, even early season um, from day to day and stuff. And so if I'm targeting like a bedding area, um, I'm trying to be as least intrusive as possible, whether it's using the wind to my advantage to getting in um, to cover up noise, you know, being extra silent, taking a little extra time to hang your set. Um, You know, we've killed bucks like right over their bed they stand up and we kill them and it's it's crazy to do that but and it's really aggressive but uh you got to have access it doesn't matter how good your spot is if your access isn't good and you're busting deer getting in that's a bad spot i mean that's just the bottom line so if you got to do something unconventional like use water to get in uh use the wind and you know when you're hunting hill country and and big timber and stuff there's there's a lot of mature bucks that live in some pockets that they're just pretty much unkillable i mean they're gonna they're gonna bed in areas that no matter where you come in whatever wind they have they're gonna bed accordingly or or move accordingly to where they're always gonna have the wind to their favor and you know situations like that it's it's tough to play that buck in his game and and uh i get a little unconventional on like either bumping them out of that spot pushing pushing them into an area that they're not as comfortable with um, then you risk pushing them completely out of the country so it's very situational on access got to think outside of the box but it's the number one key I mean like I said if your if your spot's really good and your buck's really good it doesn't matter if you blow them out of there every time you walk in so it's definitely something that you have to pay attention to and kind of step one of the process once you find a deer so what questions for Michael Perry? I've heard you talk about uh, hunting creek crossings, but hunting two or 300 yards, if I remember right, relative maybe down from the actual crossing. Uh, I'm just curious if that is, uh, are you within sight of that crossing? What's your thought process behind that? Is that like a secondary funnel feature? And is it specific to like gun or bow? Part of it is the funnel feature, but if I'm, if I'm ever hunting a creek crossing right on the creek, it's going to be an even most of the time, unless it's a, a wider area where the wind won't affect me as much. So, and I'm always going to be downstream of a creek crossing and downstream of the main crossing because most of the time a buck is going to cross to the side of a doe crossing. So, and it's also going to be tied into a, a funnel of some kind. So, but generally, like in the mornings, I'm always above a creek crossing. On a say going toward a bluff gap or a different edge, you know something else that funnels them because the wind is too risky in the morning because always swirling in our heels. So, but that's it. When you think turkey calls, think a houndstooth. 
Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB Hen, some days I might like the Ghost Cut. Some situations I might like the Country Girl Call, you know, that I can cut on really hard, where on other situations I might like the All Pro that I can get a little bit softer on. Bottom line, there's something for everybody and something for every situation. And hey, you you can get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls by using the promo code SOP24. That's SOP24. Use that promo code. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you can head over to truelockchokes.com that's t-r-u L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code Southern at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with TrueLock. You mentioned talking about using other hunter pressure to decide what you're going to do. How would you apply that in a situation of these hunt clubs, thousand acres, pine farm, 10 people in them, uh, you kind of know where people might go, but you still can't control it. How are you using their pressure, other human pressure to figure out where you're going to be and using that's your advantage? Uh, Josh, let's start with you. Uh, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm probably going to pull up Google Earth and I'm going to try to get an aerial view of that farm and see if I can depict stand situations or a lot of those places are going to have permanent blinds, they're going to have roadways, and you're going to be able to predict from that hub of where they're hunting from how those guys are coming in. And those days that they're in there, it's a great day to hunt the outskirts because if in most of these places they have one central access they have one house they're leaving from they got one roadway to get there so you can predict if they're holding deer because they've got food or they've got feeders or whatever the case may be how they're going to push those deer out and if you can find where the wind's coming off of that property onto your property you now have all the advantage of them you basically using them as a deer drive to create an opportunity for you jonathan yeah, so you, you brought up hunt club. So if you know you've got a lot of people hunting one area, what you need to do is you need to find those funnel spots, that surrounding area. And then when that pressure moves in, just like he said, you get the wind right for that funnel, and then you set up to where, where these deer are going to – where they're going to push these deer out and then funnels them down to one specific spot. And 
you 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 kind of brought back memories for me when you when you asked that question we get a lot of duck hunters i'm from arkansas so we have a lot of duck hunters i use the duck hunters to my advantage all the time i know these lakes and these these the slack water off the river that they're going to hunt i already know where these funnels are at and there's certain days of the week in arkansas that the duck hunters actually can hunt certain places so i know like on a, a wednesday for example is one of the days they can hunt this particular refuge. I know if they're going to hunt X Lake, I know what funnel I need to be in that morning because they're more than likely going to push deer to me. And I've had this work time and time again. So, so like he said, if you can find funnel areas around where you know you're going to have pressure, man, that's 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 pretty key. Hunter, let's go with you now. Uh, yeah, I mean, hunt clubs that are high pressure like that, public land, same difference. I mean, you're going to have people all over the property um you know i i try to look for things that people don't look for uh, i think one of the biggest things is is uh like josh said from the outside looking in you know don't just don't just look at the property that you're hunting look at everything on the outside of the property you know maybe there's an area or a funnel or a food source that's on a neighboring property that deer are gonna you know commute back and forth from that property on uh, a lot of people overlook that uh, the next thing I'm going to do is is a mature buck's job, and the way that he reaches maturity is avoiding other hunters. So, I mean, a, what a big buck does is patterns people, learns what they do, and he works around that. Uh, they don't really need much to survive. I mean, if you've got thousands of acres of a private farm that nobody hunts yeah whitetail is going to do exactly what a whitetail should do i mean he's going to go out and feed and he's going to move when he wants to move bed where he's supposed to bed but uh in these high pressure situations you catch whitetail doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing i mean a, a big buck shouldn't live in the middle of a great big city in an urban area and only have two acres to live on but they do because that's where they're safe uh so you know pattern the people learn what they're doing figure out what they're doing and uh you know map that out i, I like to map it out on a piece of paper or over top of a map or use your onyx or a spartan forge or whatever to do that and uh you know, figure out how a big buck can work around these people and how they're hunting. And uh, that's going to tell you a lot about that buck and what he can do. I mean, it really, it really actually narrows down a property even better than if it wasn't pressured at all. Um, like you said, on the duck hunters, I mean, it's like, if you know the duck hunters are going to push deer out of this hundred acres on a specific day then you better believe you know exactly where the deer is going to be that day i mean it's it's one of the easiest patterns to work off of so i really don't stray away from it i actually just try to use it to my advantage and sometimes it makes a buck more predictable than he would be michael perry most of the time on the public we do is a lot of times i'll give up a day to hunt to drive around and see where people are parked at and stuff and if it's mud roads or gravel roads i'll look for fresh tracks and kind of figure out how the deer are reacting to them people and then generally on my normal setups i'm going in accessing where nobody else is generally are because i'll like a big picture thing you find all the food plots all the access roads and see where them people are at then i'll look for the nastiest roughest terrain hardest place to access to trying to cut off or any of that could influence you know us and most of the time like you're saying with the mature deer and saying alabama or in the south a big buck once he gets mature 
versus the north deer, they have winter or weather makes them, they have to do things different than deer in the south. Our bucks don't have to eat in the daylight. They can get up a mile and a half away and browse all night to go check out a food plot to check for does. So, so changing your mindset on that a little bit and, and staying farther away from them areas where people are at is where the deer, to me, when they want to go to it, they'll travel farther and it's easier for them than versus the north. Jeremy, what are your thoughts? Oh, especially in the south here, I'm going to throw in another scenario here, running dogs. That's pressure that pushes them. We've learned a lot, and Daniel say that. We got a lot of river bottoms where they run dogs. We get in funnels. You know, this is gun hunting, but this is, this will be miles away from where the deer come, you know, jump, they jump him at. But a mature deer, he's going to put his nose in the wind when a dog gets after him. And he's going to be way in front of him. So we, we get in a lot of times and get in funnels and hunt them like that. But you, you're giving up the wind. You've got to get in a bend or something in a funnel for it to work. Hunt public areas pressure. A lot of times, like I said, I, I use funnels. A lot, of, a lot of the average guys are going to come out at 10, 11 o'clock. That midday, they're going to bump deer. Uh, so I, I like being in them, them funnel areas, tight areas. Daniel, what are your thoughts? Well, if you want to talk about, say, hunting clubs or whatever, uh, you can look at certain places, like you say, you're, you're going to have food plots. You're going to have you're going to have stands put out that people are going to they're going to want to go hunt at. Uh, and what I'm going to look for is somewhere there's nobody hunting because if there's nobody wanting to go in there, uh, say there's no road, say it's a thick bottom or funnel or whatever you want to call it, and nobody goes in there, there's going to be deer in there because they know it's safe. And I'm going to play the wind to get in there and hunt it, and I'm going to hunt it on, like you say, the times people are going to want to come out of the woods or be going into the woods and push deer, moving them around, because that, that's where they're going to go. It's going to go to the safe place. And that's, that's, what I'm, that's what I like to hunt when hunt, hunting clubs and stuff. I think one quick comment to that is, like you talking about people coming out at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, there's a lot of times when I hunt, a, especially a small piece of public, I won't even leave the truck until an hour or two after daylight because I want to watch where everybody goes before I go get set up because then I can use them to know where they've already pushed animals and then I can go get in that spot and wait for that animal when that human leaves that spot to circle back at noon or when the thermal switch happens at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and I can go get in that spot just by waiting until you figure out where everybody went. Do y'all do anything to control or minimize scent, or do you strictly play the wind? Do you do anything that's maybe different than anyone else, or is it just playing the wind? Daniel, let's start with you. I pretty much strictly play the wind. Um, I've tried some scent control stuff, and it hadn't worked for me. Some people it works for. It just don't work for me. So I'm a strictly wind person because as, as, as long as the deer is upwind to you and you're downwind to him, he's not going to smell you. And, and that's, that's, that's how I play it is completely wind. Jonathan? I agree 100% with Daniel. Um, I do not believe in any scent killer product on the market. And that's me personally. I, I play the wind best I can. You can't always play the wind. Where I where I hunt, it's it's flat as this room right here. And you know, you you in in the evening time, the thermals are going to pull toward the sun. You can kind you know you can kind of know that. But I try to get the predominant wind, and I do the best I can. If you you'll know, whenever I wear my my bino pack, I always have my 
sent or uh wind checker out there and i'm pumping it all day just just making sure what the wind is but i try the best i can to play the wind i don't do anything at all for for scent killer jeremy oh if you watch our channel or anything and see we stay going two and three weeks at a time you basically play the wind because you <laughs> if you car camping and you're hunting it's hard to stay super clean so uh, i'm not a scent guy neither but but play the wind Keep it to your advantage most time. And, and you're talking about playing the wind. Just because you got a good wind means he's got a bad wind. So that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that try catching it in, in, the, in, the, in the crook in the trail, crook in the river or something where you're giving up a little bit and he's giving up a little bit. Josh? So I want to cut in because I, I should have said this before. I know a lot of successful deer hunters that really believe in a strict scent control regimen and they kill big deer you cannot argue with a man that consistently kills deer year after year after year after year if you know so if he's confident in that confidence is a big thing no matter what you're doing if that provides you confidence by all means do it but i think that <laughs> you're going to open up a can of worms with that question i promise you but so so yeah so you know to each their own but whatever you're confident in that's what you should do okay josh well you stole my thunder because i was going to say that it's it, it truly becomes what you believe in like i'll be the first one to tell you my clothes are stored in a closet of their own the night before i go out they go in a scent crusher tote i ozone my clothes i spray when i get where i'm going uh, like come September 1st, my wife will tell you that I go from smelling like GQ the other eight months of the year to a completely different person because everything that I wash my clothes in, the way that I clean my truck, everything, Hunter and I are both just, I, I, you can never minimize 100% of your scent. But I will throw the caveat to that. Would you go to the woods with an untuned bow? No. So... Anything that you find that gives you confidence, that you feel gives you an advantage, then take it, do it, live by it, go with it. And I've I've hunted out west, like you said, where you've been gone for two weeks and you might take a bath in the creek and that's the best you get. And so you know you're going to stink and you have to 100% play the wind. But if I know for a fact that this couple of the deer that I've killed in Kansas – it was the wrong wind, it was the wrong thermal game, it was the wrong everything to go after them, but I had one last day to hunt them. Then I got as scent free as possible. I played the wind to that point where I could get on the edge as close as possible and and it's worked out. But there's other times that I've went through that whole entire process and not seen a deer. And I don't know whether they smelled me before I could get to them or they got to me or if they just didn't come through there that day. So. In my mind, it's, again, like he said, whatever's going to make you confident and feel that that's a chip in your game, then do it. Michael, what's your thoughts? Well, I can tell you this. You can go down there to my display, and you'll see a bottle zip-tied that what I use and what I feel confident in, just like Jonathan. So I've been on several bear hunts where I've used that stuff, and uh, the bear is in my room standing there, and I'm not in its stomach. So I really believe you can reduce it. I don't, you can't, I don't believe you can eliminate it, you know. One thing about a deer is they, like if you walk in your house and your wife or whoever's cooking beef stew, you smell beef stew. Well, a deer's gonna smell the potatoes and the onions and all that, he can distinguish everything. But I believe you can really can reduce it 
and maybe I've had numerous times where I'm hunting the edge where the wind's kind of risky, where I've had a buck, a mature buck, stop and trying to figure something out, can't figure out exactly when or where I was there, be licking his nose like crazy, and then you land on the ground. But minimizing you can, but you know, reducing it. So, so I mean, that's the best you can do. I don't think you can eliminate it, but I feel confident with it. I've always used it. I mean, for I don't know how many years now, but it just makes me feel better. You know, I'm if I'm sweating when I get there, I'm going to spray, wipe off, and all that, knock it, try to knock it down. And then at a certain time of the year, I might have a misting something else that'll help get a pause if something crosses if the wind is an edgy spot. So that's, that's just my thoughts. Hunter, what are your thoughts? I grew up doing scent control stuff. And um, like Michael said, it's, it's never a hundred percent. I've tried a lot of different products just because I'm like, why not? You know, you, you just well do what you can. Um, even if I can minimize my scent bust range from 800 yards to 200 yards that's an advantage um i can say there's there's a couple things that me and my cameraman did this year um that seemed to work very well um it doesn't seem to matter how good your game plan is a deer will do what a deer wants to do and you're gonna have deer get downwind of you and uh we did go the whole year uh without getting wind busted and we had a lot of deer downwind of us and we hunted over 100 days this past year uh, mule deer and whitetail so um we have a good system we use we use ozone and um and uh scent thief um is what we use we had good luck out of it we we batted a thousand this year but i mean you're never going to get it a hundred percent um and and my thoughts on it are if like i said if i if i can cut cut down even one percent i'm gonna do it you know um wind is king i mean play the wind like you can uh i never hunt a buck to where i have a perfect wind for him because I'm a strong believer that, you know, you can't put every mature buck in one category, but a pretty strong category for every mature buck is he's not going to walk straight to you with the wrong wind. So I either have a quartering wind or a crosswind or almost giving him the wind. Um, you can use like a, not necessarily a funnel, but a barrier. Uh, you know, if you've got a wind quartering to him, you can hug that barrier to where he can't get downwind of you until he's in range of you. Um, we had a couple times this year, we had bucks bedded within a couple hundred yards of us and we were sent free and didn't know he was there or did know he was there. And it, one specifically in Illinois wasn't a buck that we were hunting. And so we weren't really worried about pushing him out of there, but we had our wind going to him for a couple hours and then we'd have another hunter walk underneath us or walk down a trail or walk down a, a path right by us. And all of a sudden that buck jumps up and and wins and takes off and it's like well obviously we were scentless and they weren't so um i don't know try try stuff and test it for yourself see what works for you see what works for deer in your area and uh i mean nobody believes it until you use it for yourself so you gotta you get us gotta try stuff and see what works the question is for jeremy and daniel about uh downwind scrapes uh just curious to know if uh, when we, you hear, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, bucks scent checking scrapes from downwind. Uh, is that something that you have an example that you've ever specifically strategized for to any sort of trail or distance that you can think of? Or is that more something that you should understand but not necessarily use as a 
as a tactic or just if you have any thoughts of a of a deer that when you went into a specific area that was kind of your your understanding and that's what you set up for yeah especially like a pre-rut just right before the rut when they really hit them scrapes and you, and you get a front you know i really love hunting a scrape if you had a big rain and it's in a front's come through seem like they want to come back and fresh that up and yeah i, I want to back off i'm gonna back off because most time i've seen bucks several times i had a buck in kansas years ago when i was probably daniel's age didn't even know it i set up right on the scrape just lucky i had to win i watched him i see him coming straight to me but he made a big circle and come all the way around and come right back to that scrape and i'm like dang i learned something there you know, because he, he basically made him a big circle before he got to it. When he walked up to that scrape, he had the wind with, you know, in his, in his face. So, yeah, I, I like getting that buffer back off off of it. If it's according to the terrain there, how thick it is, yeah, I want to get me a shooting lane somewhere. Um, I do like seeing that scrape. I, I do like staying inside of it. I, I might not be able to shoot it, but if I can't shoot it and, the, say, the wind's coming in this, this side of it, I'm going to get where I can shoot him before he comes to it there. Oh. Uh, like I said, pre, pre-rut, I've had good luck on scrapes. Oh, you know, there's certain spots of the country, they, they kill a lot of deer on them like that. Oh, but now, past the rut, I don't have that much luck on them. If I'm hunting scrapes, I'm going to try my best to be downwind of it to a certain... Uh, most of the time, I'll try to get... 30 yards 40 yards downwind of the scrape because i can shoot 30 or 40 yards to the scrape and i can shoot 30 or 40 more yards below me so i'm covering an 80 yard downwind stretch of that scrape um and two like he said it depends on the terrain depends on the tree you can get in to be able to see the scrape and downwind um most of the time i don't give up the scrape 100 percent. i at least want a shot if not to the scrape maybe a spot right before he gets to the scrape. If there's a, say there's a trail, scrapes on a trail, you know, I want a shot either before or after he could leave that scrape, but I want to be downwind of it if I can. I'm going to cut in on a comment with that too. So being in the Ozarks, being in Missouri and all the big hill country, I have found, and it may be similar to what these guys have found, that a lot of times when you get those big ridge runs of scrapes, you can go... 200 yards either direction and if it's a, a north wind primary on one side of that ridge and a south wind going the opposite side you'll find those faint travel corridors that those bucks are using and they're never going up there possibly to even check that scrape because they're able to use that off side of the ridge and use that prevailing wind off the leeward side and they can scent check that to know what's come through there without physically going up there unless it's in that heart of the rut where they're really trying to see if that doe is physically there or, you know, catch another buck that they're trying to push out of the area, that sort of thing. I have found that you can get a couple hundred yards off those scrails with or off that scrape line and find little bitty faint trails. And a lot of times what I'll look for is like we've talked about with feed trees is look for that fresh scat that's proving to me that that buck is using that wind check to travel that uh, scent line without ever going up to check that scrape. So I have a question for the whole group. Um, just wanted your all's opinions on morning hunting and particularly early season. Uh, I feel like most of the time September 
up until just about late October, most people focus on the evenings and particularly for like you, Daniel and Jeremy, when you're, when you're out of state, that's like giving up half of your hunting time. So what are y'all's important uh, opinions on hunting mornings early season and what kind of tactics are you implementing at that time? We'll start with Daniel. Mornings, if the weather's right, if I know I can get in clean, you know, I'll, I'll try to hunt it because morning's a good time because they're coming off of food. Most of the time I try to hunt food, sort of. Um, coming off of it back to bed, travel corridor, funnel, something like that. Um, if I know I can get in without busting anything. And like you say, on the road, yeah, you got to maximize your time. Um, sometimes, I'll tell you, a lot of times what I like to do is like, like Josh was saying and and Michael was saying, um, is go and look where everybody's at. Find where they're at um, in the mornings and then bump in there 9, 10 o'clock, set the rest of the day. Because um, you will have a lot of people hunt in the mornings. And, you know, a lot of your best times and your best times to kill good deer is from that 10 to 2. Um, so I, I like, I hunt the mornings if I can. Uh, if not, I try to see where everybody's at and then hunt mid-morning on. Jonathan, let's go to you next. So <clears throat> I'll approach this question like this. I have limited time on how much I can hunt. So I'm not wasting any morning. Um, I really like to key in on feed trees early. And most of the time, my best hunts on feed trees have obviously been in the evening. So, you know, I'm not going to give up a morning to hunt. But what I might do is I've got a memory bank full of feed trees that I know that where they are. I may go to a secondary or third tree that a deer's may not be as using much as, as my prime tree over here. I may save that tree for the evening. I'll go hunt this tree in the morning. If I have no luck there, then I'll move to that tree. You know, granted the wind is right. So that's typically what I do, but I, I'm not wasting the morning because it can happen in the morning. You know, I probably killed most of my deer in the evening, but I've had a lot of great hunts in the morning. So, so my philosophy is, have you a plan don't skip a morning just because you think you need to wait to the evening don't don't give up a second really quick follow-up on that jonathan uh when you say that you're going to hunt a, a, like a secondary tree are you talking about hunting something within two three hundred yards of your main tree or are you like getting in the truck and switching spots for the afternoon hunt so what i mean by secondary tree i mean so i've got a prime tree in mind especially if I'm if I'm running the camera and I've got a deer located, but then I've probably got somewhere else that, that's producing deer also. And if I'm not catching a deer over here in the evening on camera or anything, I may go hunt it instead of, you know, trying to take a chance and going in there and bumping bumping that spot in the morning. Okay, you know, and I and I gauge this all by a lot of trail cameras. I run a lot of trail cameras to try to to try to figure out, you know, what that deer's doing. All right, Jeremy, let's go to you next. Early season, morning hunting, it all determines moon phase. If the move time's early, I will hunt it. But if you don't have a good move time in the morning, say the move time's the middle of the day, or, or you know, the, say, say your miner is, is, is past 10 or 11 o'clock, I'm not going. Uh, you know, I guess the older you get, you get more experience, you, your time's valuable. So I'm going to go when I think it's good. Uh, I do like hunting acorn trees in the morning. Oh, especially if I got a move time. You know, if my minor time is at eight to nine, or if we own a major time that falls in that, I don't really like the super, super early because you got to get in there. 
Uh, and it's hard to get in there a lot of times in the you know early season like that. But but I'm I'm very moon oriented that time of year. I, pretty much all year round, but I, I am that time of year. All right, Josh, what you got? You can't kill them in the truck. You can't kill them at home. So, in my opinion, is kind of to to his point that if it may be a secondary area, maybe some place that I'm not trying to target, but I may go in at first light. I may not actually go in you know, an hour and a half or two hours before daylight, I may be moving my way through there at first light. But most of the time, if I go out, it doesn't matter. Like Nebraska, for instance, last year, uh, we had a two and a half mile walk from the truck to the area we could even hunt. So we were leaving at 4.30 in the morning to get out there at first light. And then we would continue on three to four miles deeper. So the night that we finally killed, we sat all day and we walked six and a quarter miles from the time we left the truck to where we killed the buck at. But I saw deer move all day in 98-degree weather. The thing that I think early season a lot of people get pushed off of is it's not a prime feeding time. But what you're not thinking of is it's a prime water time. When it's hot, those deer have to drink. So if you can target water sources, if you can target lowland areas where it's holding water, even in just in the vegetation itself, a lot of times you can sneak in and you can find area where people are not going and you can work your way in there and you can watch those deer move and they may get up from this bed and move from me to where you guys are standing and bed back down. And that was just enough to stretch their legs, change with the shade and get a little bit of water and move on. And you can spend your day inching your way into that deer versus just going to a tree and getting up a tree and hoping that they come by you. So if I'm out, I don't, especially traveling, I'm going to be out all day and until I can't see. Michael, what are your thoughts? Now, if I was traveling, I would spend a lot more time hunting mornings. But in our home area, from just this is just years of my experience on our land, is early season is is crazy tough mornings because most of the time a mature buck is already back to his bed, and I, my worst fear is going in in the dark and and pushing him out without me knowing it. So, generally early season, I'll have more luck in the evenings and spend more time in the evenings. But after the light switch, say Halloween. You know, it goes to morning and evenings. But uh, now I'll try to find specific, say, satellite bucks. And if, if I think I can get in there in the morning and do it, but it's not in the main area because I, cause most of my information is based off of camera data telling me what days or what time of the year to be in there when the daylight movement is actually picking up. So, but in early season, evenings to me, better time spent. And I've got, I know an old man that's killed a lot of big bucks and he spends all his morning scouting looking for like what. Johnson's talking about feed trees, and he hunts evenings. He's finding the freshest stuff and hunting evenings early season, so that's that's my thoughts. And, Hunter, what do you think? I kind of stole my thunder there. I mean, I was going to say, uh, yeah, I, I, spend, I spend my morning scouting, uh, especially early season. Um, my number one goal is efficiency, um, and I've, I've never – I think game cameras are a great tool – but I'm yet to get a picture of a buck that I've killed before. So um, there's a lot of states you can't even use cameras and stuff. And in early season, uh, I mean, moon is the moon's accuracy is never better than, you know, early season like August, September and early October. And so uh, I hunt strictly off of moon. 
Um, I scout 90% of the time, so I'm going to be up at daylight and I'm going to be scouting, whether that's an observation sit or driving or walking or glassing um, or studying other hunters or finding a new property. I mean, it, there's endless things that you can do to improve your efficiency. Um, I might even have a buck that's, you know, I'm ready to kill him the next evening and I don't have anything else to do that morning, so I go look for a backup buck. Um, strong believer in backup bucks for public land and especially out of state. I mean, I like to at least have a list of four or five deer that I'm willing to go after. And when one gets killed or you fail or lose track of one, you can pull up on another one. So I just think creating efficiency is key. Uh, less time hunting, more time scouting. So I, I very rarely hunt a morning. If I've got a buck that I'm really wanting to kill that buck and I know exactly where he is, a buck has to be somewhere at all times. So um, I might I might hunt a morning if the moon's right. You know, if I've got an overhead moon at like midnight to 3 a.m., um, I know that bucks are going to be feeding at that midnight to 3 a.m. mark, and I might be able to catch them coming back to bed um, after that. So if the moon is just right, I'll hunt a morning. Other than that, I'm going to scout and use it towards my efficiency. First of all, Jonathan, congrats on your Arkansas buck. And uh, we was curious if maybe we could get that same reaction from you right now <laughs> here in person, because I really want to feel it. Yeah, so there's no, there's no way I could recreate that. Yeah, Get about 12 pack in, I could probably get close, but I don't think I could ever do that again. <laughs> that, that's awesome. The, I, I want to put a question towards everybody. We've kind of talked about wind a good bit on, on this little Q&A session um, and, and hunting a just off wind or getting your access right. And one thing I'm always curious about is when, when you're in the stand and maybe you're hunting a just off wind or maybe you think you have a, a pretty safe wind for yourself, but then the wind shifts, are you going to back out? Let's say it's 3.30 in the afternoon. You're, you're really confident this deer is going to come in. Well, what is your move? Are you going to get down and move trees? Or are you going to back out altogether? I'm always curious to ask guys like yourselves this, uh, especially guys who are consistently targeting really big deer. So, Jonathan, I want to start with you. What, what are your thoughts on that situation? So, I would probably base that on probably what kind of deer I'm hunting. Um, I would say 80% of the time, I'm just going to sit there and ride it out. I really am. Um, but because where, where the neck of the woods I hunt, like I say, it's different everywhere. It's so thick. I don't 100% know every time where my deer's coming from. I just don't. That's just a fact. So in, in Arkansas, flatland, just like this room is right here, the wind swirls all the time. You know, So I try to base my hunt for that morning or the evening on the predominant wind, but with, with it swirling, and it, it, just, it just happens in Arkansas. And more often than not, I'm up there and I'm pumping. I'm like, gosh, you know, that wind's just not right. And I'll be honest with you, I ride it out most of the time. Now, if I'm sitting there and it's just constantly blowing somewhere where I think that that deer I'm after is at, I'm probably going to get out of there. But most of the time, I'm probably riding it out. Josh, what are your thoughts? For me, it kind of goes back to the scent control question and purpose. Um, I feel like if I'm at the point of really trying to hone in and get in that deer's back door i'm going to take the precaution that wind is going to be favorable as far as an entrance but once i get in there i hope that i've done my part to minimize my intrusiveness um, but more importantly 
I'm going to focus on what the thermals are doing. Like I, I, as much as I pay attention to how the wind is there for access or for his movement, I'm as much focused on what are my thermals going to do when that wind dies or when that wind switches or what the thermal cover around me is going to make my thermals do. For instance, last year, the deer that I killed in Kansas, there was a 25, 20, 25 mile an hour wind east to west. I knew the deer was east of me, but my thermals, um, because of where I was on that creek, were sucking down northeast. So I was having to worry about that deer coming in that direction, but I knew to your guys' points earlier that he, you know, like you talked about with scrapes, he wasn't going to get to my wind or my thermals without being in killable range. So I'm playing all of that at one time to make sure that if the wind switches or if the thermal switches, whatever, like Jonathan said, I'm there, I'm going to ride it out. I'm not leaving. Awesome. Hunter, what are your thoughts? Um, the more into the year we got and the, the less we got busted by wind, the more aggressive I got with that, um, with the scent system that we had, but most of the time I'm not going to risk it. Um, man there's there's probably more hunts than not when i'm actually in there for a kill and ready to hunt that deer um done my scouting done my research i know i know pretty well what's going on in there and usually where he's coming from i mean they they surprise you all the time but i've i've got at least a game plan going on and if i've got a win that's going right to him i'm going to switch trees uh, more times than not so um I feel like efficiency and, and speed on mobile hunting, having your setup right, practicing with it over the summer. Um, you know, if you can do a climb in, in five minutes or even 10 minutes, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna pull my set and reset into a tree. I've done it several times to where I'm not giving him the wind at least, you know, I'm at least getting a quartering wind or something. Um, yeah, I, I try not to just give them the cards like that. I'm usually going to pull and move, but it's very situational. And sometimes you get aggressive and you stick it through, but most of the time I'm pulling my set and moving. Michael, what are your thoughts on this situation? 90% of the time I'm sticking because most of the time, like uh, Jonathan was saying, I've got multiple options. And the places where a big buck was going to, or I'm thinking he's going to come through at, it's just, the way it lays, it, it's not always going to be the same way it comes, so I'm, but I'm not going to give it up, so I'm going to stay. The only other time that I wouldn't is be if I'm hunting, say, early season and the wind is blowing straight, turning just straight to where I think it's bedding from, where it's going to come down off a point to where I'm hunting at. I might change then, but other than that, I'm sticking. Jeremy? I basically say a good, weather, I mean, a good hunter is a good weatherman. I'm, I'm looking at my phone you know, minute by minute, hour by hour, and, and what they're predicting the weather to be. So if the wind shifts, I, I ought to know it's supposed to shift. You know, I may get in there and it's, they say in the north wind, I may have a northwest just because of the terrain is turning different. But um, I really pay attention to the weather. But now I have got into a place and it just wasn't what I thought it was. Because basically being a self-fermer, y'all, you get up a tree with all your gear, you want to be there. Because it's aggravating getting it all back down and moving. But I have several times. It's just I'm not going to stay here. I'm, it's wrong. It's a wrong wind. And I've packed up and moved and just get up in a tree and kill a deer, get in the right spot. I've done it more than once. But I have set it out, too. It's, you know, because a lot of times I look at with filming, it's a job. You know, I, 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 I'm looking at it. I'm in the perfect spot when I set up. I, I, a lot of times I stand there and I'll look around to find that perfect tree 
because I want to be there. You know, I'll stay there all day if, if, if I'm in the right spot and I want to win. But, I, you know, I'll pay a lot of attention to the weather, you know, and, and, and really, I guess that's what I'd say. Uh, I will move, but I think I, wanna, I know what's, what's going to happen with the wind. Daniel? For me, it's situational. Um, if it's a spot I think I may want to come back and hunt, I'd say another day and the wind's wanting to swirl on me a little bit, I'll get out of there. Um, if it's a good spot and I'm limited on time and it completely switches and does a 180 and it's consistent, I'll get down and move um, and I'll play the thermals, how they're going to, in the terrain. It's just a, it's just situational for me, what I'm in, when I'm in it, and what the future weather prediction is. Uh, if I have see another day, I might have a wind, you know, that worked great for it. You know, I may get out of there and come back that day. Uh, but it just, it depends on the situation really for me. Awesome. Before we close out, does anybody else in the crowd have any final questions they'd like to ask? Nope. All right. All the guests, we greatly appreciate y'all sitting down and doing this Q&A. It's been very fascinating, and I think a lot of us here have learned a lot more about you guys, which is going to get us very excited for tomorrow here in each and everybody's seminar, kind of breaking down the specific topics they've decided to cover. So we appreciate y'all joining us, appreciate y'all listening, and uh, excited for tomorrow, guys. So thank y'all for joining us. You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to, to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you, whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find, you know, a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year. And guess what? This year it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.